Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. In Maine, the business of lobster is booming, but that's not the case in southern New England. In southern New England, if they had managed the fishery the way Maine did, they would still have a fishery. It would be smaller than the fishery that they had in the 1990s, but they would still have a more productive fishery for sure. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll take a look at new research that might hold the key to a healthier lobster population. We'll also bring you inside the drama of a big week in renewable energy as a massive and controversial power line plan gets shot down by a skeptical state. They understood that the impact was um, unreasonable, not just up north uh, in the middle of the woods, but also down south along existing right-of-way. Plus a conversation about the tension between contemporary arts and New England's colonial mindset. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. The world of renewable energy doesn't seem like one that would be filled with high drama, but that's just what we had this week. Massachusetts' plan to bring renewables to its power-thirsty population included an RFP, a request for proposals from energy providers. It drew dozens of bids, including a handful of big transmission line projects aimed at getting energy from big hydro plants in Quebec. It also included many smaller projects, including solar farms scattered across the region. Last week, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts surprised many observers by picking just one project to deliver all the power. Northern Pass, a controversial 200-mile-long transmission line that would cut through New Hampshire. One of the reasons for the controversy? Well, Northern Pass is owned by the giant utility Eversource, which would be selling much of this power to customers. Well, the New Hampshire Site Evaluation Committee, they voted unanimously on Thursday to deny a permit to Eversource. The vote came on just the third day of deliberations on whether to let this proposal move forward. We turn to Annie Ropeek from New Hampshire Public Radio, who's been covering this ongoing issue. Annie, welcome to Next. Thank you. Why isn't this project going forward? Well, so they had 12 days of deliberations scheduled, and they were only on day three. They were on the second test that the project had to pass in order to move forward. Um, They'd already agreed that they thought it was financially stable, you know, it had the technical kind of ability to theoretically happen. So they were good on that test. But then they were on the second one, which was about how the project would affect development in the region. This is kind of land use planning question, sort of does this fit in with the character of the area and what towns are doing sort of for their long-term development and, you know, would it kind of do irrevocable harm to those uh, those goals? And um, they really began to feel that that was a no-brainer, that it was uh, Eversource had not proved that uh, the project would not have an undue effect on the development of the region. Uh, and they felt so strongly about this that uh, after sort of agreeing that they they were feeling like it wasn't going to pass that test, they came back after lunch and 
um, moved to take an official vote denying the project outright because they just didn't think it was going to you know, get over that hill and they didn't really see the point in continuing talking about it because it needs to pass all the tests in order to get a permit. A, a lot of people have been opposed to this project for quite some time. Maybe you can just take us quickly, Annie, through some of the controversies that have dogged Northern Pass from the start. Yeah, so, I mean, this has been going on for years and years and years. It's been before the Site Evaluation Committee since 2015, and that was, you know, just the recent history of this project. Uh, the the sort of past of it is that they were trying to think of different routes that it could take through northern New Hampshire. And, you know, they were sort of jockeying with some uh, conservation groups up there and with residents who didn't want to sell their property or didn't want it near them and having to kind of go around different parts of White Mountain National Forest and then deciding to go under it and deciding how much would be buried. And, um, you know, that took years. It shaved some power and added price to the project. Uh, and then finally, they had a route they thought would work. They got it before the SEC. That's our siting committee. And, um, you know, and then the fun kind of began. So we had thousands of comments from uh, people that they sent to the state who uh, were worried this would hurt the forest, would uh, hurt tourism in the North Country, um, that the tall towers would just, you know, ruin the view and, and drive people out of the area and destroy sort of this gem that we have up in northern New Hampshire of this pristine land. Um, and there were arguments on the other side, too, of course, and a lot of them economic in nature. Uh, we had uh, union workers and other businesses who would have benefited economically from this. They wanted to see it happen, uh, to bring jobs to the North Country, you know, kind of help lift some economically stunted areas. And, uh, of course, there were, you know, arguments on both sides of the energy piece of this, too, because it is a power line. And uh, people who wanted to see uh, renewable energy coming in from Canada, they thought that was a good thing. Others who thought that it wasn't necessary, that there are other better ways to get hydropower into southern New England, or even that hydropower shouldn't have a place in our grid. And so in the end, it was uh, the impact to New Hampshire's development that kind of decided this thing. And I think I actually have a cut here from uh, Jack Savage. He's the spokesman for the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. They're one of the longtime interveners in this case, another one of the parties that was kind of jockeying with them for some of the land buyouts up in the North Country for a while. Uh, and here's how Jack summed up uh, the Site Evaluation Committee's decision Thursday. They understood that the impact was um, unreasonable, not just up north uh, in the middle of the woods, but also down south along existing right-of-way. So, you know, he's referring there to the route that would have come through Concord down to Deerfield, you know, really covering most of New Hampshire, a lot more populous areas as well as the rural north. And, um, you know, they took that into account as well. And I know that you've been hearing from other residents. What has Eversource said about this? Of course, this is the big utility company that had staked an awful lot on this project. Have they responded at all to uh, New Hampshire's decision not to go forward? Yeah, they've responded just a little bit. They declined to comment other than the statement they sent out uh, right after the decision came down. Um, they said they were shocked and outraged by the siting committee's vote. Um, they implied the process may have uh, broken New Hampshire law, that it didn't reflect all the evidence that they had submitted. They called the SEC process broken, and they say the decision sends a chilling message to any energy project contemplating development in the Granite State. And, of course, they are going to appeal. Um, and so once the siting committee's decision comes out in writing, they'll have 30 days to do that. If the SEC does not want to hear that appeal, then they would take it to the state Supreme Court. So I think we can expect to see that in the next few months. So there is still a chance for this project to go ahead through the courts. Uh, I know that this has been a, a big turnabout for some of the other big energy projects that had been hopeful 
of at least getting a piece of this RFP. I want to turn to John Dillon at Vermont Public Radio, who's been covering some of the projects on that side of the Connecticut River. Welcome back to the show, John. Hi, John. There's at least one project that was also going to cut through a part of Vermont and then go down through New Hampshire. That has new life. And another uh, project that was going to go underneath uh, Lake Champlain, which I think has a lot more life as well. Why don't you give us a little sense, John, about what those projects would do and and how they're feeling today now that they might be back in the game uh, on this Massachusetts plan? Yes. So up in the Northeast Kingdom, which is the far northern part of the state, northeastern part of the state, uh, there's an existing power line that brings electricity down from Hydro-Quebec. And Granite State Power Link, which is a project of, of national grid, would widen that corridor by about 150 feet and run additional line next to it uh, 54 miles through Vermont, through a very remote rural part, part of the state. Um, it's a complicated project because there's multiple overlaying land ownerships and easements. There's a lot of protected land up there. But they're, they make the pitch that they can do this relatively benignly on the environment. And then they would hook up uh, with the New Hampshire grid right across the Connecticut River from Waterford, Vermont. So that uh, project is, as you say, um, looking looking brighter now, I guess, since this ruling from the Site Evaluation Committee in New Hampshire. I spoke earlier with Joe Rosignoli, who's the National Development Director for National Grid. He says this gives them a second chance because the timeline proposed by Northern Pass seems to be out the window. Here's what he said. The one um, thing that was pointed at to back the decision to go with Northern Pass was the idea that they'd be on in 2020. And of course, that um, if it was ever true, it's completely um, out of the question at this point. The other project, John, that is vying for public attention and, and, and public support in Vermont is a proposal called TDI Clean Power Link. That would, it's a project of the Blackstone Group, which is a huge private equity firm that would tie into the Canadian grid, run under Lake Champlain, surface down in, in south central Vermont, and then run a buried line all the way to a substation and connect to an overland grid that's already there. So that project had the strong support of Governor Phil Scott. He likes it in particular for two reasons. One, it's fully permitted. It's got everything from the presidential permit needed to import energy from Canada to local and state permits. And they're saying they will put $5 million a year to clean up Lake Champlain. That's quite attractive to the state of Vermont because we've got this chronic problem with the lake, uh, which is plagued with overloaded phosphorus nutrients and causes algae bloom. So Governor Scott was very hopeful TDI would get the bid. I spoke to him before the SEC decision came down, but he was saying that it doesn't look like totally clear sailing for the Northern Pass project. And he had based that comment in part on conversations with Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. Here's, here's what our Governor Phil Scott was saying. They have a, a window where uh, they want to make sure that they can get shovels in the ground. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, I would say that they would reopen. And I'm not sure where that leaves TDI, to be honest with you. Um, but I would have to say that we would be in contention again. So uh, we'll know a little bit more within the next 60 days. Um, but TDI uh, still is moving forward because it's still fully permitted uh, and it uh, could be utilized for other areas as well.
So that's the governor of Vermont talking before this news came down. He's talking about knowing within 60 days. Well, we knew a lot sooner than that. This is kind of fascinating, John and Annie. So we have Vermont, a state where the governor is really behind a project. It's fully permitted. They say they're going to put some money back into the environment. The people of Vermont seem to like it. Then on the other side of the river, there's this project that uh, has already been turned down in large part because of opposition in the state of New Hampshire. But I want to turn to Patrick Scahill, who covers energy and the environment at Connecticut Public Radio, to talk about some of the other bids that were part of this Massachusetts project that may, again, have some new life. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. You've been looking at some of the solar projects that got cited uh, via previous requests for proposals. And a lot of what came back were these smaller scale solar projects, not big transmission lines. You've been following a couple solar projects that got the green light, but they've taken a while to actually get cited. Yeah, uh, the green light sort of very quickly can turn into a, a flashing orange and then a, and then a bright red. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll break out two specific cases. Uh, the first being uh, in the town of Simsbury, which is in a suburb of uh, Hartford, uh, Connecticut. There is um, what could be, if it is built, uh, the biggest solar project in terms of installed capacity in uh, New England. This is um, a solar project that's about uh, 26 megawatts, could power about 5,000 homes. Uh, it's going to be sited on about 300 acres of space in Simsbury, uh, Connecticut. And the main issue that's come up with this project is uh, the panels are going on uh, farmland. And that sparked this uh, really, really big debate about this idea of trading green for green. Uh, folks in town saying, we support green energy, we support renewables, we want to see more of those installed on our grid. But at the same time, we want to be very thoughtful about where we put those panels. And maybe siting them on farm space is not the best way to do that. So, so what exactly happens next if you've got these uh, projects which have been green-lighted and they've got a customer for the power, but there's a problem maybe getting them cited at the original scope. What happens to these these projects? Yeah, so developers have to take into account a lot of things. They have to take into account uh, what the town wants, what the state wants, what the energy grid wants. Uh, they are in, in they're going door to door and negotiating with abutters to say like, hey, we're going to put up a wall here. So when you look out your window, you don't see panels in your backyard. They're talking with the town about we're going to do this environmental testing. We're going to make sure that, you know, there isn't runoff when we clear trees from the area. So they have to do a lot. And they actually sort of build in an attrition factor when they do these projects um, saying, yeah, we're going to scale this back a little bit. It satisfies some some people, but you never please everyone. So that's kind of the, the dance that they're always having to do. And I know, John Dillon, some of these same problems have come up in Vermont, a place where there's a lot of available farmland, but people are very protective of what the ridge lines look like and, and the aesthetic beauty of the place. And so some wind and solar projects have faced some of the same opposition that Patrick's seeing. That's very true. And, and what Patrick is describing about Simsbury is a debate that's played out in Vermont over m even much smaller solar projects and certainly over ridge-lined wind. In fact, our, our legislature a couple of years ago took note of these concerns, and there was considerable lobbying from various groups and individuals about the lack of local control over these projects. So the legislature added provisions to our siting law that gives sort of greater deference to communities. They can't they can't say no definitively to a project, but they have to say what their role will be, both as a town and a region through the regional planning commissions, what that role will be in supporting renewable energy development. So there's been recognition of the, these sort of backyard and bigger issues by our lawmakers, and it's still it's still being worked out, but 
with the really big solar projects, what the developers have done is come to communities and say, okay, here's what we'll pay. You know, and there's if there's a lot of tax money on the table and even mitigation for land protection elsewhere, they're finding support. Hey, Andy, I want to finish up with you because you've been reporting on some of these smaller solar projects, which also may have a new life. Some of what you've heard from analysts and people who watch this is it might make more sense to concentrate on these smaller uh, projects sited closer to where people live as opposed to these big transmission lines, which, as we've seen with Northern Pass, face all of these problems as far as getting public buy-in. Transmission lines and these bigger wind projects or doing big hydro on site, you know, that creates the amount of power you need in one go or, you know, in two big projects and then you're done. Uh, smaller projects, you have to piece a lot more of them together in order to meet the load. And a lot of people talk about these as base load generation versus peak generation. So the base load is kind of the foundation of the grid. It's the big stuff that, you know, is always on and always has to be on. And the peak stuff is what kicks in on a, you know, a hot day or a day where a power plant fails to kind of be a backup and provide a little extra um, flexibility. Um, and so a lot of these smaller projects serve that role better than they serve um, the, the foundational role. And But we also see that they're a lot easier to get cited or potentially easier to get cited. And if you lose one, there's a bunch more to take its place as opposed to a northern pass. I think, you know, the people who advocate most for diversity on the grid and for, you know, as much energy development as possible want to see all of the above. We've heard that from business interests uh, in New Hampshire today. And, um, you know, it just kind of remains to be seen if places like Massachusetts and if the market are willing to, to subsidize that and to encourage that to happen. Annie Ropeek from NHPR, John Dillon from VPR, and Patrick Scahill from Connecticut Public Radio all cover energy and the environment. And we'll be watching all of these stories as they develop here on Next. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. John. Coming up, good news for Maine lobsters. It's Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. It's either boom or bust for New England's lobster industry, depending on where you're looking. The southern lobster fishery in Long Island Sound and off of Rhode Island and Massachusetts is in trouble. Climate change has contributed to die-offs, and the lobster population has largely moved north. That has meant great news for Maine fishermen who've seen record lobster landings this century. New research concludes that the conservation techniques pioneered in Maine have helped to drive that boom. And as Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports, researchers say those same techniques could have slowed the collapse of the southern New England lobster fishery. Cape Elizabeth lobster man Kurt Brown's been hauling traps since he was a kid. He says he quickly learned that when he pulled up a female lobster covered in eggs, he was looking at the fishery's future. And so you get used to seeing lobsters, and then you see a lobster with eggs, and it's a whole new animal. The underside of the tail is just covered with eggs. Since 1917, Maine lobstermen like Brown have used a technique known as V-notching. When they find an egg-bearing female in their traps, they clip a V into the end of its tail and throw it back. So the next time it turns up in someone's trap, even when it's not showing eggs, the harvester knows it's a fertile female and throws it back. And later, the lobstermen push the legislature to impose limits on the size of the lobster they can keep because it's the biggest ones that produce the most eggs. I use my measure right here, right on the measure. At the end of the measure is a little tool 
in the shape of a V so you just grab the lobster underside of the tail just like that and it cuts a v-notch right in the tail quick painless throw her back in and let her do more of her job and those fertile females have been doing that job very well off of maine since the 1980s lobster abundance here has grown by more than 500 percent with landings shooting up from fewer than 20 million pounds in 1985 to more than 120 million pounds in 2015 with a value of more than a half billion dollars huge, huge increase in lobsters. Andrew Pershing is chief scientific officer at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute in Portland. He's one of nine scientists, including fishery specialists, climate modelers, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who worked on a paper just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It documents how harvester practices and other factors have contributed to the Maine lobster fishery's success. Climate change, she says, has been the most important variable. The Gulf of Maine's waters have been warming faster than any other major water body in the world. Off the coast of Maine, that's actually been a boon for lobster, which reproduce most prolifically in water that's a bit warmer than the Gulf was until just recently. And because we, since about 1999, have been at really optimal temperatures for lobster, it's been about 50% that and then 50% the management that we have here in Maine. And they really are, are almost co-equal in the model. In other words, lobster population growth was twice what it would have been without Maine lobstermen's conservation practices. There are other synergies at work, Pershing says. The warming-driven collapse of the cod fishery, for one, which took one of the lobster's top predators out of the equation. But the scientists bore down on management techniques thanks to a difference in regulation between the Maine lobster fishery and the fisheries to its south. Simply put, V-notching and size limit regulations were much weaker in southern New England, Pershing says. So when water temperatures tipped above optimal levels in southern New England early this century, fisheries there weren't as resilient as they could have been, and they collapsed. In southern New England, if they had managed the fishery the way Maine did, they would still have a fishery. It would be smaller than the fishery that they had in the 1990s, but they would still have a more productive fishery for sure. In the field of fisheries management, Maine's story is unusual, in which rather than quotas being dictated from above, the call for specific regulations was led by harvesters. Patrice McCarran, executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, says that dynamic should help Maine's lobster fishery to persist, even if warming continues. And that's the really, really nice, healthy thing that's going on in 2017, 2018 that didn't happen earlier in the 80s and 90s is that the scientists do talk to industry, they do listen to industry, and we actually see response, which is really unimaginable. There are signs that in parts of the main fishery, the boom may be over, with the temperature sweet spot for lobster reproduction moving north and east into Canada. Recent data and the new model are predicting that, but scientist Andrew Pershing says that in a warming world, protecting those big egg bearers will significantly temper decline here. Lobstermen, he says, has shown that by committing to smart management, to some degree, they can make their own luck. That's Fred Bever reporting for Maine. The commission that regulates interstate fishing has started an effort to better gauge the East Coast lobster population. The Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission says the assessment of lobsters will be complete by the summer of 2020. Their goal is to evaluate the health of the lobster population and to improve management of the species. We called Megan Ware from the commission to learn a bit more. Welcome to Next, Megan. 
Yeah, no problem. I'd like to ask about the overall health of the lobster fishery in southern New England, specifically Long Island Sound, off of Rhode Island and Massachusetts, as it compares to the lobster fishery in Maine that's been booming in recent years. Yeah, so it's a pretty interesting state right now for the lobster fishery. It's kind of a tale of two stocks. So in the southern New England stock, which, as you mentioned, covers parts of southern Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Long Island Sound, um, we are at record low abundance. So we have seen a stock collapse there. um, And our most recent information, which is from 2015, indicates that that decline has continued and that we have um, low recruitment or low numbers of new lobsters coming up into the fishery. Um, In contrast, we have our Gulf of Maine, Georgia's bank stock, which is generally found north of Cape Cod and up and through New Hampshire and Maine. Um, There, the stock abundance has been quite high, so it's actually at record high abundance, and so it's quite different from what we're seeing in southern New England. Your organization has proposed some changes to the fishery to help mitigate some of these problems. Maybe you can outline what some of those proposals are and what the status is of the the fishermen in this region adopting some of those changes. Sure. So currently there are two big ongoing tasks for the board. Um, The first is we're working on a harvester reporting addendum. An addendum is a way that we... Um, consider changes to the regulations. Um, And one of the things we're considering now are different ways for harvesters to report and different amounts of information that they give. Um, And that could help impact not only our stock assessment, but also how we include data um, in in our stock assessment. And then the second thing is, as I mentioned, our most recent data right now is in 2015. And so we like to update that every five years. So our next stock status will be coming out in 2020, and so we've started that process. Let's talk a bit about the difference in lobster management. The the study that Fred Bever reported on suggests that some of the management techniques being used in Maine, a V-notching of fertile females, throwing back lobsters over a certain size, has as much as that temperature sweet spot uh, that we talked about, Uh, led to this huge abundance uh, off of Maine. The presumption made in this report is that the the management of the fishery in southern New England, because it doesn't include some of these same practices, uh, hasn't been able to to keep up with the changes in water temperature, and that the lobsters that we have left in this fishery haven't been as productive uh, as lobsters in Maine. Is there some truth to this, that, that if the management practices in southern New England changed a bit, maybe we might have a, a more robust stock of lobsters down here? Well, it's certainly an interesting discussion that I think this pro- paper is prompting. Um, we have not had our science committee review it, so I think the first step for us at the commission will be to have our science committee review kind of the merits, the assumptions, the analysis in this paper, and then that will help inform the board moving forward. Does your organization uh, operate under the assumption that, that climate change, that warming waters is indeed one of the causes of, of the problems with the lobster fishery in southern New England? Yeah, I think our science committee has certainly would certainly support the statement that climate change is affecting both the southern New England and the Gulf of Maine, Georgia's bank stocks. Are, are there other um, 
issues maybe that are affecting this this southern stock, given the the increase in population, say in in parts of Long Island Sound, there's an awful lot more pollution in the water. Is is that part of the cause? Other human causes beyond climate change? Yeah, I think there's certainly other factors to keep in mind. Um, one of them is predation. So how many predators does a lobster have in different areas? And how is climate change affecting that? Um, and then also just the magnitude of the fishery in each area is another thing to keep in mind. Megan Weir, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Coming up in a region obsessed with history, can contemporary arts thrive? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. What are some of the first things you think about when you hear the words New England? What comes to mind? Lighthouses, pilgrims, Paul Revere, autumn leaves, lobsters? Well, that list filled with history and nature helps to form our perceptions of our place, even though New England is also filled with world-class museums, galleries, and performing arts. That's a perception that the magazine called Take fought against when it launched back in 2015. Its tagline, New England's New Culture. Operating out of Holyoke, Massachusetts with a staff of 10, Take puts out beautiful print issues bi-monthly. The magazine is filled with profiles of artists, and there's also a website highlighting some things to do. But last week, Take published their final issue. Publisher Michael Cusack says he learned a lot about the arts in New England and about the challenges of spreading the word. Michael, welcome to Next. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, your, your magazine, Take, is subtitled New England's New Culture. What, what do you mean by new culture? Not lobster traps. <laughs> not covered bridges. Not maple syrup. Not that there's anything wrong with those three things. But... Uh, when I conceived of Take initially, it came out of my experiences working as a communications person and a publicist uh, who worked frequently in the arts and found a tough uphill battle sometimes to get PR um, for artists doing work um, in New England. Um, but also just this idea of what it means to be a New Englander you know, when you talk to people about what is New England, they think of it as, you know, pilgrims and the Red Sox and um, all of these very, very common images. But there's so much more happening out there. And that's what we set out to look for. Well, why do you think that that persists here in a way that perhaps other parts of the country have been able to, to outgrow? I mean, I, you look at a place like Texas. And us New Englanders may think of cowboy boots and cowboy hats and rodeos and hoedowns, but you go to Texas and they're selling it as as tech and they're selling it as a place where an awful lot of people from around the world come. What do you think holds us back and, and makes us hold on to this old tradition? You know, it's, you know, we're imbued. Our surroundings are imbued with it. I remember having a friend visit from Colorado and she was amazed that there were buildings that were built in the, you know, 1700s here. Um, I think it's something that we're very proud of our history. Um, but certainly, I think when we're when we're putting a face out to people, um, often our tourism committees and our tourism boards sort of say, you know, come here for Plymouth Rock and come here for, you know, 
the tall masted sailing ships and we really ride on our history um, to attract people here. And I think sometimes at the detriment of really promoting reasons to relocate to New England to move here. Does it hold us back culturally, do you think, this attachment to history? I think we certainly saw people who built on it. You know, uh, we had covered a, a great photographer who was working up in Maine. You know, he was photographing on the shoreline of Maine. And, and his work came out of a rich tradition of seafaring in Maine. But he brought sort of a modern angle to it. So I think it can certainly in imbue and inform us. But I think also we run a risk of being – you always run a risk of being saddled with your history, I think. And I think one of the things that maybe gets saddled with that history is, is if you think about us as the pilgrims and you think about us in colonial times, you think about a, a, a power structure that is very white. It's very Eurocentric. It's very patriarchal, um, maybe very Puritan. All things that aren't really a part – of modern artistic movements uh, here in New England or, or anywhere else in the world. I, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that, about that, that shift from being a place that holds on to a history that looks a certain way to a place that actually looks a different way and, and has to express itself to the outer world. Well, it's, you know, in our early days of putting take together, we had a commitment as, uh, as a team to reflect diversity in New England. In each issue, there had to be somebody from all one of each of the six states in New England. And so that was kind of our first diversity. And then we looked for a diversity of areas in which people were working. So it could be food, it could be dance, it could be music, and, and to find a good mix of that. And then also, which was very important to us, was a diversity in where these people were from in terms of origin. Um, and... You're looking for contemporary artists in New Hampshire, but you're looking for contemporary artists maybe of color in New Hampshire. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a challenge. And then when you start to find what's out there, you find immigrant communities across New England that are b- bringing amazing amounts of culture to the community that aren't getting their due on a regular basis necessarily because, you know, large Cambodian communities don't necessarily mesh with that pilgrim sort of identity of New England. There is a large Russian community in Western Massachusetts. Like what kind of work is coming out of those communities? What creativity are they bringing to their world in their community? Um, Shakes all of that up. I've heard about uh, this problem from people in the visual arts world, from people certainly in the music scenes around New England, that there's a certain type of uh, provincialism even within New England that means that if you are part of that small group of New Hampshire painters of color, that you wouldn't necessarily mix with the people from a similar group in nearby Maine, that that we try to keep to ourselves in our towns, our cities, even our counties, in a way that doesn't allow this place to cohere. Is that something you noticed as you were as you were building the magazine? I am both guilty of it as a person <laughs> um, and tried to kind of put a finger in the eye of as a publisher of a magazine. You know, I live in downtown Northampton, and I will have a friend call me and ask me if I'm going to that thing in Amherst, which is eight miles away, and I will whine that it is all the way over there. 
because I have to cross a body. I have to cross a body of water to get there, which is the Connecticut River. God forbid. I know. It's terrible. So there is this parochial quality to New Englanders. But also, you can get up at a reasonable time in the morning and be at the other end of New England in time for lunch, no matter where you're located. And so we are this wonderfully compact area that allows for that kind of intermingling. But I think we also have, um, we silo ourselves in our institutions and our communities quite well here. In some of our early issues, we wrote about a boutique hotel in Providence called the the Dean Hotel, which, you know, people in Western Massachusetts were like, I had never heard of that. I had no idea that would be there. I'm going to go to Providence for a weekend. What are some of the elements you found that make for cities or regions in New England that are artistically vibrant with with contemporary artists? I mean, you mentioned Providence. One of the reasons Providence is able to to have uh, an art hotel surrounded by interesting things is there's a lot of colleges there, including mm-hmm. one of, uh, if not the best design school in the entire country. Um, is that what it takes to to have colleges around, or is there some other magic that you found in some of the towns? When we first started, and we were looking at maps of New England and where we wanted to do some coverage, one of the things we would say is, go to that town, find the old mill, and the old mill will be filled with cool people. All of these um, old New England mills that pepper small towns and big cities throughout the region in many cases are repurposing and converting to incubator spaces, studio spaces, live-work lofts. When New England cities were built, they were built around their mills. So these mill buildings sit at the center often of communities. And if you can fill those buildings with life and with you know, new new products and energy and enthusiasm, there should be some ripple effect outside of that building. Because but, by the time we yeah. were building these factories in the Midwest, we were putting them on the edge of town. And, you know, and they're not necessarily in the centers of our towns. And I think there's something unique about that in New England. You know, our, um, our offices for the magazine are located in downtown Holyoke. And you know, this is a city, there is a mayor now in Holyoke, Mass., who is really committed to creative economies, uh, using the creative economy to bring um, new life to parts of the city that did not have businesses. And so our office is in an old mill building in downtown Holyoke. And the street that it's on, all of the buildings are converting into this kind of loft space. It's interesting, too, a, a place like Holyoke, it's, it's small enough, even though it's been a population center for, for centuries, it's small enough that it's never going to be dragged into this kind of greater Boston megaplex in which it becomes so expensive to live and it becomes so gentrified that the artists and the creative people can't live there. Is that part of what the magic is, too? I mean, outside of Greater Boston, which has gotten so incredibly mm. expensive, the rest of New England is filled with these tiny places with really good bones and the and the possibility of creating a unique artistic community in large part just because you can kind of afford to live there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we tried to do at the magazine was say there is a creative community here if you're a young person you know, the, the, the thing is like, well, I went to school for art and now I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to be a famous artist. And that's with any field. You know, we have all of these colleges and universities here and, and 
one of the biggest complaints by economic development people is, is that we have a brain drain. We educate all of these incredibly smart, talented young people, and then they go elsewhere across the country to invent or make a living or create a family or do all of those things. But what you also have is you have people leaving big cities and coming to a quality of life across New England to make their work. Um, and also because it's less expensive. You know, there is that opportunity there. And that's one of the things that we try to highlight in our editorial over the last couple of years is this is all of the cool stuff that's happening in New England. Like if you want to do it here, you can do it. And there may be somebody who's doing something like you or you may be a unicorn and the only one doing it. But um, if you want to do it, you can you can make it happen here. Speaking of unicorns, <laughs> the there aren't a lot of uh, high production value, uh, very well produced, photographed, edited arts magazines that are launched in the mid-2010s that frankly survive very long. So before I, I ask you about the end of Take Magazine as we know it, what what led you to think that you could start an art magazine like this <laughs> in the first I'm place? completely crazy. <laughs> um, a couple things. Um, I got, as they say, ink in my blood. I used to work for the, the Advocate newspapers. I used to work for the Valley Advocate um, and did some work coming down here to the Hartford Advocate in my day. And that's where I really fell in love with publishing. What really spurred me on is there is um, a boom in independent magazine publishing around the world. You have titles like Monocle and Kinfolk and Apartamento, high production value magazines that were finding a, a niche audience in print and online. Um, they were covering something that just other people weren't covering. And from my time as a communications person, um, I know, knew how siloed the media can be in New England, mm -hmm. that getting living in Western Mass and getting coverage from the globe is virtually impossible. Um, and, um, you know, getting coverage in Springfield for a Northampton event is sometimes tough. But artists are agnostic about borders and need audiences from all over. Um, and, and artists want to work and know what people are doing. And so we decided our neighborhood was going to be New England. Uh, I managed to raise some money um, privately from a group of people to get Take Started. Didn't raise all of the money that we needed, um, but we decided to start publishing didn't have enough staff around sales, and that really sort of kneecapped us. Mm -hmm. And so we stopped. And then um, uh, uh, Stacy Kors became my business partner uh, last year, um, and that allowed us to sort of add the sales staff that we need. And we went out there, and to a certain degree, we were more successful with print. Um, but one of the things that really sort of um, got us this time is the major shift in digital advertising, that about 70% of the money spent in this country on digital advertising goes to Facebook and Google. And so once we sort of took that out of our budget, that really kind of killed us the second time around. And um, so what made us think we could do it? Uh, you know, I think there's an audience out there for it. Certainly, you know, our web traffic went from 3,000 readers a month to almost 35,000 in about a year. Mm. So people were discovering our content. If we had the advertisers, we could have been a weekly with the number of stories that we had. Um, you know, we did get a 
we were building a subscriber base. Um, but again, some of the things just didn't happen as quickly as they needed to. Where I live in, um, in Litchfield County, Connecticut, kind of uh, on, the, on the border of both the Hudson Valley and also Berkshire County, I, I've lost track of how many free, large format, glossy publications I can pick up on the way out of a restaurant yeah. that have articles about uh, art openings or the opening of a new restaurant. Mm -hmm. And and the big difference I would note between those those magazines and in yours is yours is filled with uh, a lot of beautiful articles about people doing art, and theirs have maybe one or two articles about people doing yeah. that, and a lot a lot a lot of advertising. So for me, the reader, I think my goodness, take is exactly what I want, but you can't help but note the lack of advertising <laughs> yeah. inside the magazine being part of the problem. Yeah. Right? You know, it was. You know, one of the challenges certainly was, um, you know, we did we did well with sort of hospitality, people wanting to draw people across the border where we were getting where we were making some headway was with tourism. Um, but not all of the advertisers see New England as a region. You know, folks in you know, folks we talked to in Vermont did not see people in Massachusetts as part of their customer base. One thing that I, I noted before mm. in these in these big format glossy magazines I see that are filled with advertising is that they tend to be filled with a nice profiles but uh, somewhat uncritical coverage of of people's work. So there's the question of uh, does a magazine like Take rub up against one of the issues right now in arts coverage altogether, which is it's hard for people to both be uh, a cheerleader for something you care about, but then also be able to really dig in when you need to be highly critical of something. In a similar vein, uh, it's really hard to present new challenging art if at the same time you want people to pick this thing up and read it if they don't understand the art that you're, right. that you're doing. It's, it's this idea of challenging people, but also making a market for that challenge. Right. You know, our editorial was, our editorial was very much meant to be cheerleading. And, um, would have loved to at some point gotten to be able to include criticism because there is a dearth of of good art criticism. You know, like elementary schools, art at newspapers so it seems to be the first thing to go. And um uh and and it's a shame. It's a shame because it's such an important sector. It would be like saying, you know, covering art is as important as covering the 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 business is important is the business section, you know, and no art ever appears in the business section or very rarely does it ever appear in the business section. But it is responsible for a huge part of our economy here. You, you, you mentioned the arts coverage being as important as the business coverage. I've often wondered if the movement toward monetizing the arts and celebrating the arts as a way to create jobs is in some ways a detriment to the idea of of art for art's sake. And you've been on both sides of this mm. business. So I, I'm wondering how you feel about that, about the, the notion that as soon as we put a dollar value on something and say, the good thing about this new art space is that it will bring in this many jobs and this much uh, to the economy and this much in tax revenue, that there's something inherently that we're missing about the value of just doing it in the first place. Well, I think even before you have to get to that place, 
I think where you have to get is is understanding that people make their living as artists. And 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 I think we haven't even quite gotten over that hurdle because often you hear a mayor and I live in Northampton and I've had a I've lived under a succession of mayors who've t- touted you know our arts community as a reason for tourism. But you know, it's 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 kind of awkward in a sense because you wouldn't tout all of the dentists as a reason for tourism. I mean, you know, you have to you have to get to a place where, you know, these artists, this is how they make their living. And and we haven't sort of adjusted. We haven't sort of accepted that fact to then move on to this place where there there is this economic impact that artists have that choreographing a dance is economic development baffles some people. Um, and, um, but, but it does. It brings in audiences. It provides a living for somebody. Um, uh, hopefully, it can provide a good living for somebody who can, they can then have a, a, a life beyond just making their art that they can afford. What are you hearing from your readers uh, about the magazine going away? Uh, that's sad. You know, people thought we gave it a good shot. One of the nicest things anybody said to me is I had coffee with an old friend who was in town, and she said, all of you at Take planted a whole bunch of seeds that you don't even know about. I hope to continue to travel around New England and see if some of those seeds have bloomed when I least expect it. So, Mike, thanks so much for speaking with us. I really appreciate it, and, and congratulations on whatever new success you will have. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for the time. You can find the final issue of Take Magazine at bookstores around New England. The archive of articles at thetakemagazine.com will remain available for free. We've got a gallery of photos from Take's reporting around the region up on our Facebook page. Just search for Next New England. While you're there, take a stand against provincialism. Leave a note about what's going on in the arts in your corner of New England, and we'll be sure to share it with our Facebook community. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.